Good afternoon, and welcome to the Southwest Public Policy Institute's latest episode of SPPI TV. We've titled this one, Corporate Welfare, Make It Stop. My name is Patrick Brenner. I'm the president of SPPI. Our mission here at SPPI is to improve the quality of life in the American Southwest by formulating, promoting, and defending sound public policy solutions based on the principles of free enterprise, personal responsibility, limited government, individual freedom, and traditional American values. We are dedicated to delivering better living through better policy. SPPI is a 501c3 nonprofit charitable organization. Donations to the Institute are tax deductible. Our work is sponsored by viewers like you. You can help us keep these events free. We invite you to consider making a contribution at southwestpolicy.com slash donate. Please join me in welcoming our panelists for today. Uh, first, I have John C. Mozina. He is the president of the Center for Economic Accountability, a free market think tank fighting corporate welfare at the state and local level. And I'm going to hand it over to uh, Vice President of Research at the Southwest Public Policy Institute, D. Dowd Muska, who will actually be participating in today's panel, and it'll just be uh, you two. Um, Dowd, go ahead, take it away. Thank you so much, Patrick, and I will do everything I can to not completely occupy the next hour, folks, because uh, I've been fighting corporate welfare for 30 years. Uh, it's probably my favorite subject to tackle because it, it, it encompasses so much that's wrong with American public policy from your local community right up to the federal government. But before I go to John, uh, and I will try to let John get one or two words in over the next hour, I'm going to kick things off with two of my favorite examples from the world of, of corporate welfare. Um, if you don't follow this issue all that closely, you might think of it as economic development. I think in the next hour, John and I are gonna explain why uh, corporate welfare is a much better, more descriptive term. Uh, I'm gonna, one example from my home state of Connecticut back in the, the People's Republic of, of New England, and one from right here in the, uh, the Southwest, uh, the American Southwest. In May, 2006, Connecticut's governor, M. Jody Rell, uh, taking office when the previous governor was on his way to prison. Uh, she was at a ceremony in Wallingford, Connecticut. She announced, quote, this is the new financial services industry. These are high paying jobs, career jobs. Uh, these are the jobs we want for the future. This was the kickoff of uh, the corporate campus for a financial services company called Mortgage Lenders Network. This was in May 2006. Uh, the governor said this is the future of the financial services industry. Seven months later, uh, Mortgage Lenders Network stopped making new loans. Two months after that, Mortgage Lenders Network filed for bankruptcy and a federal liquidating trustee was appointed. Uh, nine months after that, mortgage, what was left of Mortgage Lenders Network, not, not much was left, but whatever shell of a company still existed, uh, had to make settlement payments with a number of states, including Ohio, New Hampshire, Michigan, and, and the home state of, of Connecticut. Uh, and again, that was the future of Connecticut's financial services industry, a company that very, very quickly went bankrupt. 10 years later, it's 2017, uh, here in the, the land of enchantment, uh, the League of Women Voters of Santa Fe County, not, not, an, or, not an organization you'd think of as a, as a, as a policy anal analysis organization, conducted a study. They found that half of the 10 entities that received the most money from the from the, the city of Santa Fe over the previous 20 year period, including subsidies of, for some organizations, $400,000, $300,000, half of those top 10 organizations and companies no longer existed. It was more than a little ironic because three months earlier, uh, the local newspaper there, the Santa Fe New Mexican, had documented that the Santa Fe city manager of the Office of Business Growth had been photographed sleeping 
in his office. Uh, this was a gentleman who made more than $80,000. I believe that salary, so benefits you'd have to kick on uh, even more money. Uh, he was a politico uh, who had done phone banking for the incumbent mayor. His wife was a lifetime public service hack who quit the Beanie State rep a couple of years ago because she whined about not making enough money. She's currently in charge of the regulation and licensing department in the great land of enchantment state of New Mexico. Uh, John, those are two of my favorite corporate welfare stories. Um, your organization, the Center for Economic Accountability, probably has those stories times 25,000. Uh, tell us a little yeah. bit about your, your group and let's just get to basic principles. Why do people like you, why do people like me call it corporate welfare and not economic development? Well, because to, I mean, to call it economic development, it would have to actually do sort of what it says on the packaging and, and develop the economy. And, and, you know, the evidence is that it doesn't. Um, and that's the, you know, we sort of, why do we oppose it? And, and there's a variety of reasons, but I mean, it's sort of like, well, there's the fact that it doesn't work. There's the fact that it's incredibly expensive. Uh, there's the fact that it uh, has a whole bunch of other bad impacts on the community. We can get into things like how it uh, decreases entrepreneurship, it decreases innovation, it decreases uh, spending on meaningful public resource, meaningful public services, police, fire, roads, schools. Um, and then there's just the whole thing of it's just like it's you know one of the terms that we jokingly use for it is sidewalk level socialism. It's it's an attempt to do economic central planning and and you know throughout history the story of the past century was uh, the story of the fact of that not working uh you were going through your favorite stories i've, I've got i will i'm not going to one up you with you thousands but i'll take one here from my home state of michigan which is um a couple of years ago back in uh 2010 um guys sitting at a bar and you know, the news is on a tv and he sees this guy he knows on stage with the governor um celebrating a uh you know nine million dollar subsidy for green jobs from uh then governor jennifer granholm current u.s energy secretary jennifer granholm uh a, G a green jobs for his renewable and sustainable companies incorporated um up on the stage and this guy is uh surprised by this because he is in fact um the richard short the ceo of the company his, his parole officer um and mr short was uh had been uh on parole for embezzlement, had been uh, convicted of fraud already in Michigan four times, still owed uh, almost $100,000 in state-owned restitution from his last uh, um, fraud conviction, and yet some economic development agency had not done the sort of basic due diligence of like making sure that the guy they were working with wasn't a currently on parole convicted embezzlement and fraudster who, of course, had lied on his application to get that $9 million. And you know, the reason he got caught was just that the news happened to be on at the bar where his parole officer was drinking. So that's the kind of story that uh, that you see uh, quite often in, in this world. I mean, maybe not quite that bad, but over and over again, just just really egregious outcomes that don't match up with all of the promises that get made at the uh, groundbreaking ceremonies and the ribbon cutting ceremonies. Yeah. And uh, one of the we could easily do the whole hour just on unpacking some of the details, but I did want to do sort of a, a dive for a little bit. Uh, we still have 52 minutes on, on, you know, 50 years ago, I've, I've been reading some books about the history of, of corporate welfare. And it's interesting how Mississippi in the 1930s, if you want to go 
back that far. We could also even go back even to the 19th century uh, with internal improvements and, and all sorts of monopoly and privileges that were granted. And that's the reason we have what are called anti-donation clauses in a lot of our state constitutions, because these things ended up being boondoggles that were funded by the, by the taxpayers. But it started very small in Mississippi, trying to lure factories really out of the Northeast, out of the Rust Belt to come down there. And I'm going to start with, you know, maybe one of the oldest tools of the last century uh, in corporate welfare called the Industrial Revenue Bond. Um, John, how does that work? And it's, they're very clever because they're really saying, well, this isn't really a subsidy. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look close enough, you, you can see that it actually is a subsidy. What is an IRB and why do so many states cities, counties, uh, they, this is one of their favorite, favorite tools to hand away to enterprises. Yeah, I mean, a, a, an IRB, an industrial revenue bond is, uh, you know, there are just a dizzying array of ways that governments can give money, public money, public resources, public credit, extend public credit to companies. And the IRB is one of the ways we're basically, uh, to simplify it down pretty far, it's the idea that the um, municipality issues the bond to basically sort of ensure the financing of things like you know if you need if you're building back in the day a giant factory to build cars or something like that you okay well you need presses and you need lines and you need to spend a bunch of money up front and maybe companies find that sort of financing hard especially back in the day before the uh, the wall street and the like had had uh uh, made financing quite so liquid and made it so much easier to get money now than it used to be uh, back then, you know, back in the days of, of gold standards and such things. The, you know, you make the point of, of the things were different in the industrial era and in the, the era of smokestacks. This is one of the reasons that that one of the nicknames for these kinds of economic development subsidies in general is smokestack chasing, because there is at least a, a a plausible argument uh, that back in the day, the idea of like, if you paid, you know, if a local community helped pay for a factory, then that would actually create economic activity, it would create jobs, it would, cre it would bring people to town. I mean, the story of uh, my hometown of Detroit, of places like Cleveland, uh, St. Louis, Baltimore, Chicago, American industrial age cities. Um, the story of people moving, you know, sort of as farming became less labor intensive, moving off the farms and going to where the jobs were. Detroit is the story of the people leaving the South, largely African-Americans, leaving the South and coming up to Detroit where the jobs were in the factory. And they were good jobs and you could make sort of middle class jobs. And so it made a certain amount of sense for a city to say, like, well, hey, we can get this going if we help the company with the factory, if we help them with the plant, the steel mill. Um, then, you know, people will move here and we will have a secure economic future. Um, at the time, like I said, there's a good, you know, you can have philosophical arguments about whether that's the proper role of government, but at least from a dollars and cents ROI perspective, like, yeah, it seemed to reasonably work pretty well. I mean, assuming that the company survived for a meaningful length of time. Um, the problem is today that, you know, maybe we're jumping forward too much, but today that's jumped, that's turned on its head. Today, you know, it used to be people went to where the jobs were. Today, jobs go to where the people are, the knowledge workers, what people have called the laptop class in, in recent years, the idea that um, the companies are, people are going to where they want to live. It's the places that you see growing, places like Austin, Texas, Salt Lake City, you know, Portland, Oregon, even though that's probably changing a little bit, the various places, you know, um, Maricopa County in Arizona, various places, a lot of them in the Southwest, where folks want to live because there's a quality of life that they're looking for. Uh, Florida is a good example of that. The the thing is, is that companies now are so dependent 
on a skilled workforce. It is it's virtually every survey that someone does of corporate site selectors, they say, what are you looking for? Workforce is far and away the number one skilled sort of white collar or high blue collar sort of, you know, uh, um, robot repairman type workforce. Uh, companies are going where those people are, which means that the companies are going to where the quality of life is not, you know, it's not a function. People aren't moving across the country to take a factory job anymore. Companies are moving across the country to find computer programmers and, you know, um, uh, automated milling machine repairmen and things along those lines. Well, it's interesting you mentioned agriculture because I was raised on an apple orchard in, in southern New England. And it's fascinating how uh, we talk about the farm bill every five or seven years at the federal level, this atrocity that, that funds people who should not be getting a dime. I'm fascinated, I've written about this before, I'm fascinated to the extent to which local and state governments uh, have their own sort of farm policies. Uh, my, my In the state of Connecticut, they have a uh, what's called the 490 program, where like a lot of places in the Northeast, property taxes fund local government. Farther west you go, property taxes sort of drop off to be almost nothing in a lot of states. But the law in Connecticut is your land, if you're actively engaged in agriculture, it cannot be assessed for the market value of the land. It has to be assessed as if it were going to be maintained as a farm. So the notion that a farmer could unload that land to uh, for a big chunk of money because someone's coming in to, to do a big, big development. No, 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 no. It's assessed on maintaining it as a farm, which is an, an immense indirect subsidy where you get a tremendous tax break, particularly if you have dozens of acres, hundreds of acres, thousands of acres. It's fascinating how much over the last few years, particularly the whole organic movement, the whole sort of crunchy stuff, which you know cuts across all the ideologies. There's conservatives who love to have their own eggs, and there's liberals who have to love to make their own wool. Uh, agriculture, it's not just it's, it's crony capitalism, as some people have called it. Uh, it's not just at the federal level anymore. It's also at the local and state level. And Connecticut is a is a wonderful uh, example of that. Uh, loan guarantees, John. Tell us about loan guarantees. This is where the government sort of steps in and assists uh, an enterprise in getting that getting money or getting an interest rate that it might not otherwise be able to get. Yeah, I mean, it's it's again, like the 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 mechanism is that the, um, the federal government is pledging whether it's direct dollars or it's, it's a tax break or it's a tax abatement or it's the 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 um, they get cheaper. The, the company gets their money cheaper because they have the faith and credit of the state or municipal government behind it by guaranteeing the loan against default, so they can pay a lower interest rate. Because the the uh, government says, well, if they default, we'll we'll cover it, um, and so the, the bankers and lenders will will lend at a lower rate. Um, like I said, there there's there's just a dizzying dizzying array of different ways to give. Um, basically to give public money to private companies for private profit. And most of them are designed in such a way as to try to let politicians say, oh, well, we're not, you know, we're not actually giving them, you know, any tax dollars. There's, there's no tax dollars changing hands here. Well, I mean, yes, there is if they default on the loan guarantee and taxpayers are on the hook for the loan. Um, or, you know, the idea that, oh, it's a well, they're just paying less in taxes. That's a tax break. Um, that's, you know, anybody who's ever played with a balance sheet knows that the a, a dollar in income or a dollar less in expenses end up at the same point on the balance sheet. Um, and as far as the, 
the, you know, I've had um, legislators, especially uh, sort of conservative legislators, try to say, oh, this is just a, I'm in favor of tax breaks for anybody. I'm in favor of businesses paying less in taxes. Um, I've actually talked to, to the, the great Grover Norquist at Americans for Tax Reform about this, the, the sort of the father of, of the, uh, the taxpayer pledge. And he's said, um, uh, and has sort of given me permission to quote him and saying that this is those are not actual tax breaks. It's just corporate welfare. And instead of giving a couple of companies a few specific breaks or a few special breaks, instead, what we should be doing is, is cutting everyone's taxes by the aggregate amount. Uh, and there are times uh, when the amount of money that's getting abated in taxes for a few companies adds up to the equivalent of everyone's taxes. Back in uh, uh, 2015, 2016 or so, I forget the exact year state of Michigan, um, a couple auto companies, automakers that had gotten just massive, massive, massive tax breaks during the uh, mid 2000s recession. Um, you know, they weren't using them when they weren't making any profits. You pay, you know, you pay taxes on your profits. So they were, they held on to them until they started making taxes. Then all of a sudden cashed in so many of their tax credits all at once that there was more money that year that went out in corporate tax breaks than was collected in all corporate income taxes combined. Basically every business in the state paid their corporate income tax and then more than that money went out from the treasury to a couple automakers. So that's really the uh, the environment that, that can happen in that world. Yeah, and it's interesting when you talk to, I, I call them revenue crats, people who are in government or they're activists and they're more concerned than anything about revenue stability. You know, that's why we have to have our three-legged stool of taxes, which, you know, I think places like Texas prove that maybe you don't need all three legs of that stool. But from time to time, you'll hear them complain about the the unpredictability of differential tax, tax treatment and the fact that companies kind of change the dates when they're applying or when it's awarded mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. But I think you make a really good point about the picking of winners and losers. I've, I've often said that economic development, the economic development world, uh, I probably could use vulgarity, but I won't. But the people who live in that world are as uh, self-directed as teenage girls at the mall. Uh, they they go with whatever's popular, with whatever's cool. And if you really look at the bill drafts in, in Michigan, where, where John is, uh, and anywhere here in the Southwest, it's fascinating. I, I, if you look at the bill drafts at the beginning of legislative sessions, fortunately, in most states, most of those bill drafts don't become law. And too many of them do become a law. But whatever's hip, uh, they want to create a tax credit for a deduction or any, any kind of program. And I, I want to get John's thoughts on this. Uh, right now, John, I think if you want to go farming for corporate welfare, I would say energy storage, cybersecurity, and nanotech, uh, if you want to harvest money from the taxpayers directly or indirectly, those are very, very big in economic development right now. Uh, have you found what I've found, that kind of trendiness with these people? It's it's kind of what will get headlines, what will what will fool voters, what will look good if you're giving an interview because it looks like you understand the economy. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it's on a very superficial level and not at all good long term for the overall health of the economy. Yeah. And I mean, that that go, you're absolutely right. You know, and it, it varies some state by state as well. There's, um, you know, some uh, some states, there are just sort of politically untouchable, always popular industries here in Michigan. It's manufacturing and automotive in places like Iowa and Nebraska. You can't touch the big ag companies. I mean, you mentioned farm subsidies. I, I made the point a couple of years ago that the um, the estimated total national price tag of state and local economic development programs was somewhere in like the 95 billion dollar range it's sort of hard to tell exactly what it was but that's based on uh, new york times mercatus a couple others um at the time that was like more than i think it was three times more 
than uh, the uh, USDA reported in direct farm, federal farm subsidies that year. So th this kind of corporate welfare puts the, the, uh, the uh, farm bill stuff to shame in many cases. Um, these days, obviously, you know, you see all over the country, it's, um, it's chips and it's, you know, electric vehicles and batteries and all that sorts of stuff. The chips are dri being driven by the Federal Chips Act, where there's a huge amount of money going out the door on that. Um, but to your point of the, the sort of the political popularity of this, it all comes down to, to what I, I say all the time is, is the, really the fundamental truth of these programs, which is that they don't exist actually in the real world to create jobs. They exist to make voters believe that politicians are responsible for creating jobs. They are a political tool, not an economic tool. There's any amount of research. Uh, and we, we, may, we, uh, we curate a whole list of it on our website um, against the idea that these deals have any meaningful economic impact on the communities that they're supposed to be benefiting. Uh, you know, there's arguments from people like the university professors at the University of Iowa so that 90% of these deals are, are failures and only 10% uh, succeed. And I, I talked to them and they're like, the problem is we don't, can't figure out which the 10% are ahead of time. Uh, uh, professors at, at UNC and UConn saying that, you know, that it's, the thing should be clear to, to any policymaker that these things do not create jobs over and over again. Um, you know, the, the, the research just from independent name brand major researchers all over the country is just really, really clear on this stuff. What's also clear, however, is that there's also a whole bunch of good research that there is a meaningful political benefit to politicians and elected officials who take care of this stuff. Um, big subsidy states where governors are running for re-election are twice as likely as those where they're not uh, to see sudden large 20% or more jumps in subsidy spending. So basically like, oh yeah, go figure, just as we did uh, this past election cycle, there were seven states where governors made billion plus dollar subsidy deals and were running for re-election all seven of them won their re-election campaigns um companies that make political donations are four times more likely to get a subsidy uh deal than those that don't and those subsidies are i think it was 63 percent larger on average politicians who uh make subsidy deals have higher margins of victory on election day they are more likely to receive campaign donations um, one uh, fundamental piece of research from uh, professors uh, Nate Jensen at the University of Texas at Austin and Eddie Molesky at Duke University found that when a swing state governor can take credit for, quote, winning a thousand uh, manufacturing jobs through subsidy deals, they can see as much as a 9% increase in their intent. 9% um, among independent voters will win you a lot of elections. And while most politicians probably don't know what that specific number is, it's pretty clear just from especially watching last year in the election campaigns that they get at a gut level, at the very least, that these are that these subsidy programs are extremely powerful political tools. I, I've made the argument before, if you want, if you're worried about dark money in American politics, start looking at these things because the amount of money that goes into these just massively overwhelms the amount of money that actually gets spent sort of through campaign finance tools. Uh, by far, these deals are, are the, the really the undiscussed and undiscovered, um, you know, method of election financing that, that's really going on out there. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to get into the issue of, of the right left alliance. I'm glad you mentioned dark money, because of course, that's thrown out by people on the left all the time. And 
you know, that there's some complications with that accusation. It's not as sound yeah. as they say, but um, it, it is it is fascinating. And, and it's for people who are concerned about polarization in our country and we're all screaming at each other or worse. Uh, you know, folks like you, folks like me are, are, are all too willing to partner with, with people on the progressive left when it comes to this issue, because uh, it, it just seems that great middle ground where it, it is just dead wrong on this. And there's just sort of all too often lockstep agreement. Um, I, I can see someone who's not well versed in this just saying something like, "Well, what, you know, government exists, you know, to make life better for us." I mean, you guys are opposing the creation of jobs I, from a first principles perspective, John. People on our side of the argument are in no way uh, uh, attempting to 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 uh, harm the economy. We, we we support a productive economy, but we just think that this is a is a, an unholy alliance where there should be a very bright line, a very high wall. You know, pick whatever metaphor you want uh, between the private and the, and the public sector. And one of the things that bugs me the most about this is because I I think when when there's this kind of commingling happens and people in the productive part of the economy and in the, in the in the capitalistic part of our of our society they mingle with people on the political side who spend other people's money who use coercion law is coercion if you don't do what you're told eventually someone with a gun is going to come and fine you or put you in jail uh and on the government side where there is a legitimate role for government i'm a libertarian but i believe there's a legitimate role for government government starts to pretend that somehow it's responsible for wealth creation and technological innovation. Um, from a first principles perspective, you know, your thoughts on that. I, I think we can get lost in the, in the statistics and the studies, but um, there's a philosophical, uh, I think a very sound philosophical objection to this really founded on, on enlightenment principles. Uh, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, you, you you mentioned the idea of sort of the the it's not even bipartisan; it's almost transpartisan nature of the stuff. And and I've I've joked that you know you could you can hate and fear big business, or you can hate and fear big government, but we can all agree that when the two of them get together, it's the rest of us who get screwed. Um, you know that the polling actually shows that the folks who are most opposed to these programs are the sort of furthest right and furthest left, and the folks who are most in favor of them are the most centrist. Um, and that's what makes this often a very interesting place to work with. And I, I do work uh, uh, in the CE. I does work quite often with um, you know friends and allies uh, on the on the very progressive left, and we'll tell them they're wrong about virtually everything about this. There's a, I actually wrote a piece for National Review a little while ago pointing out that. Uh, um, you know, as National Review had actually pointed out at the time that that Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was right about one thing, at least, which was in her opposition to the Amazon HQ2 in New York City. Her her reasons for being right about it were different than ours, but her, but she was at least right about this at the same time. I remember talking to a, a longtime left uh, left wing activist in the space when we launched the CEA and I sort of let him know what we we're doing. And his, his, his response was, uh, welcome to the fight. We'll get the money back from the bastards. Then we can fight about what to do with it. <laughs> but the, uh, to the first principles, I mean, it, it really does come down to, to, as you said, to, to the role of government and to the just sort of basic, you know, um, you know, Frederick Bastiat level of, of just like no politician, no bureaucrat is capable of planning an economy effectively. They're not capable of selecting what businesses can and should be successful. Um, you know, if it, I joke that if, if bureaucrats were, it's like, you know, state economic development agencies were able to actually, uh, you know, 
realistically look and say this business is a great investment this is going to be this is they're going to go gangbusters they wouldn't be making civil service salaries in in state houses they'd be making millions and billions on wall street and hedge funds or whatever i mean this is the 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 these programs use the rhetoric and the language of investment but uh, if actual investment firms uh, investing people's money acted the way these agencies do, the the uh, the uh, operators would be uh, fired, broken, often in jail for for the way that they behave. And and the the you know they sell. I joke they celebrate their wins, but they celebrate wins like a like a roulette player who puts money down on red and black and then celebrates when it wins. Well, yeah, like it won, but like in the on the whole, you're, you've you've lost a whole bunch of money because you put money down on everything and you're just not talking about your losses. The, uh, the, the simple reality is, is that, you know, as I said, this, these are fundamentally, and the term socialism gets thrown around a lot these days, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly, I think, but the, this really is socialism in a very meaningful way. So as I said, the sidewalk level socialism of government taking a direct financial stake in the means of production, in factories, in, data centers in corporate headquarters. I mean, it is at a, in a very meaningful way, you know, the government trying to plan the way the economy works. And, and, you know, I said before, if we, we call these economic development agencies because the term Soviet was trademarked, you know, we, the past history of the past century is that governments suck at running economies. And here we are spending, you know, hundred billion dollars plus a year so that governments can try to run economies. It's fascinating the, the when when the economic development departments of various states release their plans, their five-year plans or their ten-year plans, and there just seems to be no awareness on the part of these people. Maybe they're really young and they it's weren't like alive that, during the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, now we have energy departments at the state level releasing their state energy plan, mm -hmm. uh, something right out of Mao or or or, or, or Stalin or Brezhnev. I'm glad you mentioned the the Amazon HQ, uh, John, because I wanted to get in a little my own. Point of personal privilege, which is the snake. We, we think of these big corporations, and they're they're more adept. Uh, you know, multinationals are more adept at playing this game, and, and because they have government affairs departments, and they've got lawyers on staff, and that kind of thing, and and they can actually just issue a request for proposals and say, "Hey, a uh, hundred different communities, tell us what you want to offer us." It's really extremely mm -hmm. tawdry. We recently. They had, and I, and I talked to Greg Leroy, who's a left-wing critic. Mm -hmm. We recently had uh, the federal government. I think Greg said this is the first instance, or one of the first instances of him ever running across this, where the pitch, "Come on down and, and show us your subsidies," was not offered by, in this case, was not offered by the private sector. It was offered by the Pentagon in the form of U.S. Space Command. Now, Donald Trump uh, stood up. Uh, brought brought back uh, what's called the Uniform Combatant Command. Uh, my, my military guys will get this UCC called Space Command. It's different from Space Force. We don't have to get into all that. But when it was reconstituted and it was formerly housed in uh, right up here in Colorado, uh, when, it, when it became reconstituted, it needed a, a, a headquarters. And the there was a whole bunch of back and forth and the people in the Senate were angry about this because they wanted their communities to get a fair shake at this. In this one instance, and I think we saw it again with a couple other examples, the federal government, not, an, not a private entity, was saying, we want your pitches. And I followed this very closely. I contacted a whole bunch of different economic development entities, counties, cities. Uh, many of them wouldn't give me their plans that they were pitching to Space Command, what they were willing to offer. I ended up getting a, 
one document is 80 pages long from somewhere upstate New York. And I think legally I'm not even entitled to have it. I think it's classified <laughs> material. I requested a uh, the plan from the Albuquerque city, the city of Albuquerque that did their own pitch to the Pentagon for Space Command. And they said, well, under state law, we don't have to respond to your uh, freedom of information request because uh, this involves trade secrets uh, and this is a you know commercial enterprise so we don't have to respond to you. Um, transparency, transparency is a real problem with a lot of these deals in terms of uh, what's being pitched, what's being offered, uh, what the what the entities who want the subsidies are demanding, uh, how how much of this is being aired publicly, how much is this going to cost, where are the assumptions coming from when we hear things about 1,300 new jobs, 5,000 new jobs, a multiplier effect of 3.1. There are very serious, I mean, it is not hard to find uh, real world examples of very serious transparency problems like the one I encountered, uh, John, when it comes to these deals. Talk about transparency and accountability here. This is something, again, the left and the right should be agreeing on. Absolutely. And it, and it is a topic where the left and the right agree in practice, uh, in my experience. And it's one we we are actually uh, the CEO are actually co-founders with, as you mentioned, Greg Leroy of Good Jobs First. We are, are uh, co-founders with them and with the American Economic Liberties Project, which is a uh, ironically named left wing group, I guess. Uh, but great on this issue and some others, uh, the, the Mackinac Center for Public Policy from the from the center right and, and uh, some others in the in that space of the what we call the Band Secret Deals Coalition, uh, bandsecretdeals.org for anyone who's interested. And it's a uh, effort to try to get states to pass law to ban the use of non-disclosure agreements that, that so that uh, elected and appointed officials can't sign non-disclosure agreements uh, when negotiating economic development deals. Uh, to keep information that theoretically should be under FOIA laws and Open Meetings Act laws, uh, public information to, to keep it uh, out of public view using the, the tool of a, of a non-disclosure agreement, basically saying that uh, uh, state government officials should not be able to sign away the people's right to know. Uh, and the first state so far to make uh, meaningful progress on that is the uh, state of New York, where the um, state majority floor leader, a Democrat, uh, Mike Gianaris, Senator Mike Gianaris, uh, introduced a bill that the Senate passed. So that's moving through the, uh, the New York legislature there. So it really is a a bipartisan good government topic. And I mean, and it really goes to the, the heart of this, which is if we don't know what's going on, how can we make sure it's happening in our best interests? How can we see where it's gonna be better, where it needs to be better? Um, before we started recording, you and I were talking briefly about a story that came out in the Detroit Free Press just this morning, where the Michigan Economic Development Corporation, our state's uh, primary economic development agency, essentially told the reporters uh, that they they're not going to let any, they don't need to tell us um, who decides how much money gets handed out in a subsidy deal, what the process is for that deal, uh, who all's in the room where it's decided, uh, what sort of metrics they use to decide. They say, well, if it doesn't have a good ROI, we're not going to do it. But they, we, they then ask us to trust us that the people making that decision are the right ones, that they're using the right tools. I mean, the, the evidence from, uh, from independent analyses of, of Michigan's economic development work is, is pretty clearly that no, they're not. But just the, the sheer gall of, of a state agency telling the people of the state, yeah, we don't have to tell you what we're doing with your money. Like, just just that's fine. Trust us. And even Democratic lawmakers in a, in a Democratic governor and uh, legislative state are saying, like, like, how are you doing press conferences, press releases saying, oh, we're giving this company X hundred billion dollars or million dollars. And then coming and asking us for the money, like how is that a good idea? 
um, basically, fundamentally, people need to, to realize this. Like, look, the idea, trusting that the current model of economic development is is like a good idea requires us to trust the idea that um, politicians and bureaucrats and business leaders are getting together in secret behind closed doors deciding who's getting how much money but that they're doing it in our best interests that to me i don't know many people who who think that that's really how things work in that world but that's fundamentally the argument that's being made uh, in the, in this world of economic development, I, a couple of years ago, I went to a uh, conference on uh, Freedom of Information Act in um, uh, and held by the Cato Institute in Washington D.C. And people there, the, the main speakers were folks who were in the process of trying to get information out of places like the Defense Department and the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, um, and the FBI, and the like. And it was really interesting listening to them talk about the challenges they had. And then afterward, I went up, I was talking to them. I mentioned that I was in economic development. They're like, oh, man, you've got it hard. So <laughs> when folks who, who's like trying to get information out of the NSA think that, yes, that it's yes. tough to get info out of an economic development agency, <laughs> yes, it really is yes. a problem. That's the fundamentally to your point. It's just like we don't know other than in rare circumstances where something um, pops up or something gets gets uncovered for somebody screws up something publicly it ends up in court so people get on you know have to be under oath to answer questions um, it's just you know until you know in the rare occasions where we actually get to see behind the scenes it rarely looks good no it's very rare that I see something where like the, the information happens pops up and then it's like Oh yeah, well that that looks good. Everybody there seemed to have made a rational decision, and everything looks great. Good job, you all. Keep on going on. Like it's it's. I can't think of the last time, if ever, that I had that reaction. It's always just like, oh my god, oh oh, just like it's like slowing down for a car crash, like what's going on, and that happens. It's it's often enough when we see behind. It's often enough, or it's a high enough percentage when we see behind the scenes that it makes us feel that like you know, realistically, just Occam's razor. That's probably the way. Just things really are, and frankly, I I. I didn't mention in the beginning that that you know I come to this world after spending um, better part of twenty years in in sort of what I now um, know to call the private sector. The thought of time I thought of as having a job, and I was, you know, I wasn't an economic development professional, but I was in the world of like being a consultant, and I worked with economic development agencies. I worked with companies uh, that got subsidies. I worked with real estate uh, developers that were getting subsidy deals. I, I planned press conferences that had. You know, my scorecards and like one president, probably a half dozen governors, U.S. senators and various other folks along those lines. So, um, you know, I saw behind the scenes of this stuff and nothing that I see now in the world of like research and critique and other things I say now are contradicted by my experience of being behind the scenes in terms of all those sorts of things. Um, it's just it is it's not that everyone who's handing out and not that every elected official or every every agency person who's who's involved in these deals is acting in bad faith anything like that there's certainly plenty of folks that don't know any better that are just trying to do the right thing they they think like this is the only option i have they think you know i could try to fight this but i you know i got to keep my powder dry for other things you know certainly not that everybody's a bad actor but the system encourages and rewards bad actors. Um, and it's able to do that because it's so hard for us to figure out when someone is acting badly, as opposed to trying to act in our best interests. Well, I'm glad you brought up your, your experience, uh, in, as, I, as I call it, the productive sector. <laughs> I've studied this for 30 years. It's what companies are looking for, what entrepreneurs and investors are looking for. Um, 
yes, you can point to an individual deal where an industrial revenue bond or a grant program or something made the deal for them. Mm -hmm. But again and again and again, I mean, for decades now, you, you mentioned earlier, workforce, infrastructure, um, you know, the, the data centers want reliability of electricity, you know, they want cheap electricity. There are so many other factors at work here. Um, the defenders would say, but if we didn't have this menu of tools, and we, John and I, at the beginning of this discussion, I think we talked about four or five. I have about another 13 on my list if we wanted to get into them. Um, talk about, I think, what's really f a fundamentally dishonest argument on the part of, of the economic development community, which is, but for <clears throat> this policy tool, uh, you and I would call it a subsidy, uh, this wonderful uh, job creation, uh, this building standing here, this skyscraper downtown, or you know, wh whatever it is, this factory, but for our, you know, the wisdom and our planning and the policy tools we have at our disposal, uh, we wouldn't have created these jobs. Uh, economic development is a very, very complicated affair. And of course it can vary by individual firm. It can, it can vary by industry in terms of what's desirable. Um, they're not really telling the truth in every case, John, when they say we sealed the deal with this subsidy. Yeah, and the thing is, most state laws that I'm familiar with require them to say that as a, as a uh, you know, they, they say, okay, this uh, this deal is, you know, they're called, you know, a lot of them are, are um, structured as uh, closing funds to try to, like, close that deal. Uh, a lot of them require that, okay, if not, you know, but for the the uh, the subsidy, the uh, the project would go elsewhere, the jobs would go elsewhere. Um and that's, you know, that's in, a, in economics known as the but for argument, which I always say is, a, is an example of uh, the, the reality that economists should not be asked to name things. Um, but that, you know, the, people have actually gone and done the work on this. Um, there's a, a very well-respected, um, really smart and well-known researcher in this space, uh, a guy named Tim Bartik. He's at the Upjohn Institute for Employment Research uh, in uh, lovely Kalamazoo, Michigan, here in my state. And he's probably the, the most widely quoted and cited and respected researcher on this stuff. And he actually went and he looked at a couple hundred different studies that tried to get into the, the but-for argument in various places. And he did an analysis of all the studies and came up with sort of, okay, here's what the consensus is, which is that uh, somewhere between, at, at best, at best, uh, the subsidies actually change a company's decision in 25% uh, of the time, which means that 75% of the time, these subsidies aren't changing the company's decision. They were going to do the same thing anyways. At worst, it's they change the company's decision 2% of the time. So somewhere between 2 and 25% of the time, the subsidy works. Um, Tim usually, I think, sort of shorthands that to, to you know, 80%, one in five times. And I think that's a, probably a somewhat reasonable one. Like I said earlier, there's a, uh, and that doesn't even get into the question of whether it was worth it, whether it was actually a good deal. It just says that like it actually changed the company's decision. So that's where I think you get where the uh, University of Iowa research from the Journal of the American Planning Association I talked about earlier that, that found that, you know, nine out of 10 times, it doesn't work. And that's a, that's a good, um, you know, that's, that's a good way of looking at this from the standpoint of the idea that the, um, that's exactly what the site selection industry's own research says. Every year, uh, Area Development Magazine surveys if they, for, for 36 years, they've been surveying corporate site selectors on what factors they are looking at right now, this next year, on site selection. Um, so it's for 36 years they've been doing it. And every year, every time they go through, like, you know, tax incentives and all this sort of stuff, 
end up somewhere eighth, tenth, twelfth, somewhere in there in the in the list of of uh, ranked in terms of what matters to them. So you know, it's not that these things don't matter. You know, sometimes they do. Sometimes, as you said, they make the difference. Uh, question then becomes: Was it worth it or not? But they are so far down the list that it's very rare that they are the, that everything else is so finely tuned that the workforce is so finely tuned. The, the available, you know, uh, plots of land, the proximity to customers, suppliers, natural resources, competitors, all of the other the energy costs, corporate tax rate, land property taxes, all those sorts of things. That all the other things that matter more are so finely balanced between two or more places that it's the subsidies that finally make the difference. And um, the big thing for people to realize is that in the bigger the project, the less likely they are because they, to make a difference. Uh, the example I use is this is every year we hand out a, a worst economic development deal of the year award. Uh, two years ago, it was Apple handing $834 billion to, or excuse me, North Carolina handing $834 billion to Apple Computer to build a research lab in the research triangle and said, oh, if it wasn't for this, uh, they were going to they were going to go to Ohio. Uh, and being from Michigan, I, I am uh, constitutionally required to crap on Ohio and note that there's no <laughs> there's no like roving bands of unemployed re AI researchers going around Ohio. Like like uh, that's the research agrees with me on that one. Um, uh, go blue. The uh, the um, but the eight hundred thirty four million dollars. And that sounds like a lot of money. And for a state budget, it is. The thing is, Apple has more money. Than North Carolina does. <laughs> yes, like, yes. like Apple has more in revenues than North Carolina does. Apple has more money in the bank than North Carolina does. Um, Apple's, uh, for what it's worth, the $834 million over 30 years, Apple at that point was reporting more than a billion dollars in revenue a day. So less than one day's worth of corporate revenues spread thinly out over the next 30 years is not going to change Tim Cook's mind on where to put some really important corporate research facility. Now, someone in Apple whose job it is to negotiate subsidies got a gold star and probably some stock options that year. Did it change the company's decision? No. Nobody who actually has any experience in how companies make decisions is going to think that. And we see that over and over and over and over again, that the numbers look big and the job numbers look really large. But in reality, when you start comparing it to like this, compared to like companies' revenues, especially major companies' revenues, you start talking about like a General Motors or Ford or Intel or an Apple or somebody like that. They're like, that's a day's revenues over the next 30 years, two and a half days revenues over the next decade and a half, those sorts of things. That's not what's changing businesses' decisions. And if it is, then the CEO should get fired because it's a terrible way to make a decision. Uh, we got questions coming in, flying in, folks. Uh, <laughs> thank, thanks for everybody watching on whatever whatever platform. You know, I know Patrick has us on probably 17 different platforms where we can reach you in any way. Um, we've got some kind of tangential questions. I'm going to kind of put them on the back burner. Uh, we're not going to ask John about a central bank digital currency for now, <laughs> although I think if there's a way for economic development bureaucrats to get involved in central bank digital currency, they're going to just jump right in on that and see, see if they can uh, subsidize that. Uh, Economic impact studies. Uh, we're going to hopefully get to sports after this, but economic <laughs> impact studies. John, you're laughing already. Uh, the magic of the multiplier. Uh, some very sound economists, I think maybe Roy Cardado down in North Carolina and, and others have really picked apart those magical thinking documents where if we just funnel this much money in, we'll get this many jobs, and then we'll get this many indirect jobs, and then we'll get this many induced jobs. Uh, there's a lot of bad junk numbers going into uh, job impact studies and economic uh, impact studies, aren't there? 
Yeah, it, you know, it's it's the old, I think it was Mark Twain, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And I said, you know, lies, damn like statistics and economic impact statements. Um, there is just so, it's, it's the classic garbage in, garbage out. These tools can be used, you can plug whatever numbers you want into these tools. And I, I've talked to, to experts, um, you know, I mean, it's not that you can't sort of predict the economic impact of something within a, a range of uncertainty. And that's one of the things is that nobody ever, no economic development agency, no governor ever talked about this stuff in terms of like, well, this will create between X number of jobs, or whatever. And it's, it's uncertain. And here's like a range of uncertainty the way an actual economist would that's it's, they say it will create 10,427.2 jobs or something like that. And they don't know. Um, they also uh, abuse these tools uh, by stretching them out way, way beyond any like rational, um, any rational ability to predict things. Uh, you know, governments are hard pressed to predict like what will happen in the next year in terms of like revenues and economy and all that sort of stuff. Five years, you know, I've talked to economists, basically like you could maybe get away in some cases if you were trying to like uh, publish a paper in a refereed journal where other economists were going to try to pick apart your work. You could maybe get away at most with using these tools to try to predict five years out. Anything beyond that, it's going to get kicked back to you like, nah, it's just BS. That's You can't do that, and which would make sense. Like who here like actually thinks that they could sit there and make a rational prediction about what our your local economy is going to look like in five years? state economy, national economy, what any one businesses, like, you know, opportunities or, or expenses or competition is going to look like in five years. I mean, it's it's virtually impossible. And these some of these folks are working, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out. I did a uh, talked about the a battery plant out in West Michigan. It's got a 30 year abatement. I'm just by the time this battery plant abatement runs out, we're almost going to be in the time frame of the Jetsons, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which is just it's it's insane. Um, we'll have our flying cars then. I, I, I mean, just about, I, that, I mean, literally that's how I think like I actually did the math and, and, uh, uh, daughter Judy Jetson will have been born by the time this, uh, this, oh, okay. uh, one factory subsidy rolls around. Um, you know, it's a 30 year thing for a lithium battery factory. The lithium battery is only 37 years old as a technology. Like nobody <laughs> knows what's going to happen. You know, how are you doing that? Um, but they can, they can make the numbers look, they can make the numbers come out however, however they want. My, my favorite story is I always say, everybody talks like, oh my God, they were using a five multiplier or a seven multiplier. And the idea of a multiplier is not inherently like bad. Like it's reasonable to say like, okay, a job is created and that creates more economic opportunity. And usually the question is, is it like, well, is it one and a half? Is it two? Somewhere in there, you know, most, most of the sort of people who are, I think are trying to re- realistically answer the question, it's probably somewhere in the one and a half to two and a half, sort of depending on on what kind of industry and, and what kind of job it is. Um, the worst I have ever seen. Um, I don't know if you if you want to try to guess at what the number is for the worst multiplier I've ever seen. Uh, one to nine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are you are so optimistic. It is thirty nine point one, which was in when the Carolina Panthers uh, got the state of South Carolina to uh, subsidize them moving, not their stadium, but, practice their, but their practice field and team headquarters to, to Rock Hill. And it eventually fell apart. They, they started construction and then the local community couldn't sell the bonds that they were supposed to, to fund the project because no bond that have economic impact it would need to do in order for the community to be able to pay off the bonds. Um, so they couldn't, uh, they couldn't sell that in the project as, as, as of right now, I think half built and under all sorts of litigation, but yeah, they, uh, 
was 39.1 was the the uh, subsidy that came out because like basically one state legislator just had the principles and the guts to stand up and just be like this is ridiculous i'm gonna force you to like publicize the actual numbers behind this stuff uh or i'm gonna hold it up and then, of course as i understand it even though that number came out when it looked like it was a questionable approval in the state legislature they sent the um Panthers cheerleaders to the floor of the legislature, and it uh, it had passed in a walk. So that's the way wow. all of this stuff. Well, goes. I mean, you know, with that kind of reasoning, I would think that you know South Carolina should offer every NFL team a deal to bring their practice squads to South Carolina. I mean, you get thirty nine jobs. I mean, that you know, I mean, come on, that's you know, pretty pretty sweet. Oh yeah, um, no, all these things are ridiculous. It's it's. I remember I'm doing once that the economic impact supposedly of a minor league soccer stadium. Uh, again, not, I'm not trying to pick on North Carolina, even they tend to be pretty bad about this stuff. They one minor league soccer stadium uh the the economic impact of that if you made the entire economy out of minor league soccer stadiums uh, raleigh uh north carolina would have an economy the size of the united kingdoms <laughs> raleigh yep. that's, that's very, uh, we go. are criminally low on time john uh we have a question about sports which we could do a whole hour on um in, in here in the southwest we've got the vote coming up for the uh arizona colorado uh i'm, I'm sorry was it the that's no, the Arizona Coyotes. Uh, we also have the Oakland A's possibly moving to Las Vegas. So these are issues really in the in the news really daily uh, here in the Southwest. Um, the, the 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 arguments uh, the argument when it comes to sports is very interesting because they've done a little sort of deft maneuver here where some of the proponents are actually saying, okay, we know it doesn't pay for itself and the stadium's empty most of the year, but this is something that you can't put a price on our 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 municipal our civic our statewide identity. Uh, you're starting to see some of those arguments coming out. They're like, they're, 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 they're throwing out the math when it comes to this. Um, it, it, it's, it's talking about tawdriness, the, the ability of sports franchise owners, most of whom are not hurting financially to extort sort of the goodwill of the fans in a region. Um, this is something that's been going on for, for decades now. This is not particularly mm -hmm. new. Um, we have just seven minutes, but uh, your, your, your thoughts on that. I, I find it, if you're talking about the, this is some of the worst of a very uh, ugly uh, society of subsidizing private industry. Uh, when it comes to sports, um, it's, it's something that really uh, I, I find tremendously distasteful. Yeah. As you can see over my shoulder, our, our, our pay for your own damn stadium campaign. Yes, yes. Um, the back in 27, the, the um, University of Chicago uh, has what they call the Institute of Global Markets, and it includes a panel. That they of the basically the most eminent economists in the country, folks who are like chair of like Ivy League economics departments and the Council of Economic Advisors and all sort of like the best and best known economists in the country. And they they survey this panel every so often on economic questions. And every now and then they throw in sort of a fun question. And back in 2017, they asked this panel, um, basically, they said basically asked, you know, do you think that stadium subsidies return more to a community than uh, it costs taxpayers? And the result was as close to unanimity as you can virtually possibly get. It was 84% um, said no, 11%, um, you know, don't know, not sure, and 4%, which was one guy, said yes. And that one guy was apparently a massive Cubs fan, and his Cubs had just won the World Series. And he sort of made that argument that you were making, which is that, well, economically, no, it's terrible. But the uh, sort of like civic virtue and pride and happiness is worth the costs. Now, my favorite part of that whole thing is that uh, the 88 or it was 84 percent who said no 
included seven Nobel Prize winners in economics. Wow. <laughs> so it is hard to find any question in economics, like law of supply and demand, even the level of, of economists agree that these things are terrible, terrible, terrible ideas. And I get the civic pride issue. I mean, I'm a huge sports fan. I, I'm a sports season ticket holder. I like it is a big part. I mean, the TV behind me in my office here is not for for uh, you know C-SPAN or whatever. It's it's for Tigers games. Um, but uh, it is just it is not by any stretch of the imagination a good use of money. It just doesn't do anything. In any case, in any case, it often more hurts the community because it is it is just this you know for almost all of the day, almost the entire year, they are these like basically black holes in the middle of a local economy. That stadium spend their lives just dark and cold and silent other than for like a very few hours at a time. Um, you know, you know, I always try to like, you know, make the example of, or the, the connection of how many customers do they serve in a year. An NFL team serves about as many customers in a year as a single grocery store does, the average size grocery store. Um, and the grocery store creates better jobs other yep. than the, the the 53 guys on the roster of the NFL team. Uh, the, you know, the, the jobs at a stadium tend to be second job, side job, you know, Minimum wage service whatever. jobs. They, they, yeah. they sort of so like um, the, the civic pride thing, realistically, the, the answer is that to that is that um, cities don't become big league by getting teams. Cities become big league and then they get teams. Exactly. That's why they you see teams interest. going to Austin. To Oklahoma City, to Salt Lake, you know, you can watch where teams go and where expansion teams happen and where teams move. It's because the city has grown to the point where it is a market that justifies a sports team, um, which might not be, you know, a great answer for the folks who lose their teams. I can only imagine, you know, A's fans or any of those folks who mm -hmm. lose their teams. That, that's got to be heartbreaking. Again, like the, I have this huge emotional connection to my teams. It would kill me if they move. Oh, maybe the Lions. You could have the Lions. But like beyond that, like, you know, <laughs> we'd leveled NFL team in Detroit. Beyond that, it's just it's just it is so much money. We last year we broke the billion dollar barrier barrier for state subsidies, and this year we've already had a one point two five billion dollar one. Last year's the Buffalo Bills. This year it's the the uh, Tennessee Titans, and it's just more and more and more. Um, that's real money that can be you know either not taken from taxpayers in the first place or spent on other you know meaningful public services that benefit everyone rather than just a few billionaires um and this is one place where i will go to the barriers usually i think billionaires hey cool you know you probably created something but in this case no just like that you pay for your own damn stadium everybody else around the world manages too you can do it too well and also this argument about being loyal to the team and having civic pride uh does the owner have loyalty to the community if if any good deal comes yeah. along and yeah. he can just you, pack you up first. and bail on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Where, where does that loyalty begin? Um, John, this has been a great hour. Uh, we we got to have you back for another hour. Uh, your organization, and, and I've waited for a dedicated organization focusing on corporate welfare from our perspective, more of the sort of conservative libertarian perspective for a long, long time. And I'm so glad we finally have one now. It's called the Center for Economic Accountability. Uh, your website, John, and how people can find out more about your work. You're active on social media and you're fighting this battle every day. Sure. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, we created, a, you know, I used to be at a, at a state-based think tank and one of when I, I left there, um, one of the issues we really realized that there needed to be someone who was just focused on this issue. And a lot of times it's because like, there's a lot of folks who have a lot of money in this and there's a lot of bad actors out there that, that will sit there and apply pressure to any organization that looks like it's trying to get too loud or too effective on this sort of stuff. And so we needed an organization that in addition to one that was just, you know, subject matter experts, one that, that had was really focused on following on this every day, 
Also, you know, one of the roles we play is what we like to call plausibly deniable bomb thrower. There's places where folks can't just get sideways with the governor or with the Chamber of Commerce or whatever, and they need someone who can come in and actually, you know, pick the fights and, to, and uh, tell the truth that needs to be told. So uh, we are at uh, economicaccountability.org is the website. Um, happy, you know, we've got some a lot of really good resources there for people who want to learn more. Um, you can go sign up there. We will send you a pay for your own damn stadium sticker for free. Let us know what color we have. Uh, we have have Oakland A's uh, ish, not copyrighted team colors for those in, the, in Nevada and elsewhere. Uh, a lot of lot of colors that look very relevant to places where teams are asking for for particular stadium subsidies. Uh, or on uh, Twitter, we are Accountable Econ on Twitter. You can just sort of search, you know, search Center for Economic Accountability and on Google, and you will uh, you will find us. That's awesome. I'm, I'm proud to say I, I post on our Twitter account for the Southwest Public Policy Institute uh, corporate welfare quotes on an almost daily basis. And John's been known to retweet us once in a while because uh, in our in our eight states, our 95 million people, uh, corporate welfare is uh, a sad reality, uh, as it is in, in other regions of the country. Uh, thanks for tuning in, folks, uh, for another edition of SPPI TV. Uh, there's a QR code on the screen right now if you want to support us. We want to keep these events free, uh, but we can't do that unless we have generous support. Uh, from folks like you. Check us out at southwestpolicy.com. And of course, we're on all the socials, the Twitters, the LinkedIn's, and, and everything else. Uh, our goal is to preserve the strength of the American Southwest, the, the eight states of the American Southwest, maintain our region as a beacon uh, uh, and an outpost, really, for the best uh, of America, the, the American experiment, and also fix where we have problems so because our region is, is not perfect and uh, the words California and New Mexico come, come, come to mind. Uh, thank you for your support. We will be back again uh, next Friday. Uh, check us out online, southwestpolicy.com. And we appreciate, as always, your viewership and your comments and feedback. Thank you.